May all grace, mercy, and peace come to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So long, long ago, way back before the advent of the interstate system, there were roads like Route 66 that existed. If you've ever been down there, then you know what those roads were like back in the day. They were full of uh, interesting tourist attractions, motels, diners, things of that nature. And then came along this interstate system and made things quicker. Took those roads out of existence to where they became a foregone conclusion. Most everyone knows about Route 66, but perhaps not everybody knows about Highway 50. You know Highway 50, you recognize that name. You know it stretched all the way from California all the way to Maryland. It ran east-west. Well, after it closed down, obviously, and there are certain parts of the country, parts of those roads became very desolate. In fact, there was one road, that uh, a portion of it that runs through Nevada, that Newsweek, back in the 80s, claimed as the loneliest road in America. Here's what Newsweek had to say about it. It said there was no points of interest along this highway, and it warned people not to travel it unless they were confident in their survival skills. <laughs> Big sign that says no gas station for miles. Make sure you got plenty of gas, water, and everything else. It's funny. Funny how that works. This once bustling road became an afterthought, as did Route 66 for that matter. There were multiple attempts to sell Highway 50 throughout the years. Today, there's still state parks. There's retro-style diners. There's still little towns that dot that road. And yet, it still remains the loneliest road in America. And if you've ever seen a picture of it, it's nothing but hard scrabble, cactus, desert, and a long road. And there's a, you know, because it's so hot, you get those mirages that appear. It looks like the road goes straight up. And you look at that road and you go, why would I ever want to go down there? Pretty interesting how years ago the highway could sell itself, but it was replaced by something that offered something quicker to more interesting things. So many things are like Route 66 and Highway 50 for that matter, even today. You know, those things that were great and rewarding at one point in time, but have been replaced by something more attractive. I'll give you an instance, look at the skilled labor force. There's a job nobody wants anymore. Try to hire people, and people would rather do some menial data entry job rather than get their hands dirty, do things like roofing or AC work or mechanicals. It's amazing. But life is like that, isn't it? It's full of choices. Things that bombard us that, 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 that seem more appealing because they're easier to do. And then what happens to them? They last briefly, and they too go by the wayside. That's what happens, though, when you live in a society like ours, a society that's a market-driven society. Think about how that applies to religion for a moment. Think about selling Christianity in a market-driven society. Yeah, I said it, that word, selling. Selling Christianity. Because isn't that what we're tempted to do sometimes, to sell Christ? But we tend, to, when we do it, to sell it as a low-cost low-risk commodity. Sell the gospel, but leave out that part about the law over there. Why would we do that? Well, perhaps it has something to do with the requirements that Christ gives the disciples in Luke. Now, let's face it for a moment. This road that Jesus travels, in a way, is a very lonely road. It's not exactly attractive. 
I mean, who wants to travel a road where people persecute you, spit at you, beat you, whip you, drive you out of town? A road that honestly terminates at a cross? But the road that Jesus travels has a lot of cool things along the way. Look at his life here on earth as he healed people. He made the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, turned water into wine. Yeah, even Jesus has those joyous occasions. Calm storms. But today, today Jesus' words in Luke give a stark contrast to all the wonderful things he's done in his earthly journey. And perhaps right here is why we Christians today attempt to sell Christianity with as much curb appeal as possible. To begin with, Jesus says that whoever follows him and does not hate his mother and his father and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, and yes, even his own life can't be his disciple. Wow. This is a God of love telling us to hate our families. In fairness, though, Jesus did warn us that his message would divide families. Doesn't this go against the Ten Commandments? Then go against the commandment to love thy mother and thy father? Does Jesus really call us to hate people, to hate our families? Well, let's, let's hold that in comparison to what Matthew's Jesus says. Jesus says in Matthew 10, whoever loves mother and father more than me is not worthy than me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy than me. It's not that Jesus wants us to hate one another. He doesn't want us to hate our families per se. It's that we got to have to decide where our loyalties lie. To emphasize that point, Jesus then says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Here again, Jesus is speaking to getting rid of those competing loyalties and self-interests. Hate our families and our lives? Bear our crosses? Well, that sounds really appealing, doesn't it? If this were a job description in today's world, it might read something like a Newsweek article that I read years ago about the world's toughest job. The, the Newsweek article about the world's toughest job was relating to the person who is a decision maker. But we're going to take out decision making and replace it with a disciple. So here's how it would read. It can be more fatiguing than a day of stone cutting. It can be more racking than a day of performing heart surgery. It can bring success and happiness in life or failure, unhappiness, and death. In today's security-conscious society, it's a job that fewer people want to tackle. It's not for the faint-hearted who are afraid to fail. It's not for the reckless who can be dangerous. It invites ridicule, criticism, and unpopularity. But without it, the world stands still. It is the lonely, worrisome, ulcerous, precarious job being a disciple. That's really appealing, isn't it? Who's ready to apply? But guess what? Lest we forget, that is our job description. As Christians, when we came to that baptismal font, just as Camden did this morning, we got that Holy Spirit. 
but we also got that reality that there's an expectation of what it means to be a disciple for Christ. It's not always popular. It's not always attractive. There's times that we have to stand firm, that we have to proclaim the entire Word of God, no matter what, because you can't have the gospel without the law. There's no, no use for it then. It's in our DNA. Being a disciple, friends, is not a, a means to an end. It's a response to what Christ has already done for us. But maybe we tend to forget that at times. Maybe we've left it at the baptismal font. Maybe we tend to forget all the wonderful things that God has done for us, as if there's some distant memory left on a lonely road that's long forgotten. You know, we have a decision to make today. We, we can try and sell Christianity as a low-cost, low-risk market item of faith, in which case, in reality, we're just taking on Dietrich Bonhoeffer's cheaping and of grace principle. We can sell out the faith altogether and just leave it, leave it as some distant memory, or we can go full bore, take on our responsibilities as children of God and not sell God but promote God's grace. Spread God's word in its entirety and let God sell God. There's always a choice. There's always a decision to make, and it carries great consequence. You know, when Moses laid out his appeal to the Israelites in Deuteronomy, there was a finality to it when you think about it. He presents to the Israelites with an appeal where the decision is life or death. He sets before the Israelites, good in life, or death and evil. Obey the commands of the Lord. Love your God. Walk in His ways. Keep His commands, His statutes, His laws, His rules. And you shall live and multiply, and God will bless you. But turn your hearts away from God. Worship other gods and serve them, and surely, surely you will perish. Moses doesn't leave it there. He doesn't just leave it and drop it. He continues to appeal for the good things. He appeals for the Israelites to choose God, to choose life. For that means blessings. Moses wants them to make a good decision. But I can't imagine that that was easy for Moses to speak those words in their entirety to these Israelites. Nor can I imagine that any of the Old Testament prophets for that reason relished all those hard things they had to say knowing they would face persecution and threats and et cetera. And I certainly can't imagine it was easy for Jesus to willingly walk that lonely road towards the cross for the sake of humanity. Being a disciple of Christ, doing God's work, certainly isn't low risk, low cost. And Jesus makes no bones about it. When Jesus said those first couple of things there about hating the mother and the father and all that stuff, you know, he, he's, he's talking about how expensive it is to be his disciple, what we've got to give up. But then he didn't stop there. He tells a couple of like mini parables in there about the, the builder who, you know, if he doesn't estimate his cost, he can run out of materials. And he, then what's going to happen? He's going to be mocked. And then he talks about the, the king that's going off the war. He's only got 10,000 soldiers and he sees a 20,000 person army coming at him. And if he doesn't weigh that cost about how much he has against that, it means demise, unless he goes out ahead of time and negotiates things. 
This goes right to the cost of discipleship. Jesus emphasizes the importance of finishing the discipleship journey once it started or not beginning it at all. It's not cheap. It's not easy. It requires loyalty, undivided attention, and allegiance to Jesus over all things that compete. And you know what that means? It's a hard word. It's not attractive. It means sacrifice. Self-sacrifice makes Jesus more than a great teacher, more than just a, a religious leader. It makes him the redeemer of you and I, of all creation. Now, are we ready to make this mark of our ministries, that mark that, that Jesus bore for us? I mean, for the Apostle Paul, that meant getting up out of the dust of the road on, the, on that road of Damascus and giving up the prestige and the honor and the life as he knew it. For Martin Luther, that meant giving up safety and the quiet life of a monk. What does that look like for you, for me, for us as a congregation? We don't know what the road ahead will hold for us, but we have to be willing to step in behind the glorious army whose feet have marched in all ages, places, in all sort of conditions, who are ready and willing to follow Jesus into the jaws of death because they too bore in their bodies his mark of self-sacrifice. Think about it. If Jesus hadn't walked that lonely road, if Jesus hadn't willingly sacrificed him on the cross, where would we be today? But because of Jesus, we have a road that leads to life, eternal life with him. So when we leave today, we have a choice to make. We can go out and go about and get caught up in the ways of society. Or we can go out and look for those opportunities to spread God's word in its entirety. To look for the downtrodden and the poor and the outcast. To let them know that they have a decision to make as well. That they can choose life. Because there's no other life than life in Christ. And to God be all the glory. Amen.